Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to be with us now. I pray that you would open ears here, open minds to uh, hear and understand your word, what your spirit would say to them. We give you thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A man and a woman are driving along in their car. The man is driving, and uh, they see a hitchhiker in the headlights. It's late at night, and they're driving along slowly, and the man starts slowing down, and the, the hitchhiker is off to the side of the road. And as the hitchhiker enters into their headlights, they begin to see that it's kind of odd. And so this hitchhiker is standing there with a hockey mask on and a chainsaw in his hand with a trench coat. But the husband keeps slowing down, and the woman thinks he's crazy. But he says, look, he's got a 12-pack of Bud Light in his other hand. <laughs> you may have seen that commercial. Now you know that it is actually associated with our Bible text. <laughs> Paul is the woman who's sitting in this passenger seat trying to wake the Galatians up who are driving the car to the fact that the law is death. This hitchhiker that he sees inside the road is going to kill him. But they don't see it yet. They see something of value in that person, and they do not see what the risk is. So that's the problem. So now you have a mental image now of forevermore as to what the Israelites were doing in Galatia, or what the Galatians were doing. This is not working. There we go. So now let's start at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? He's trying to awaken them from their slumber. He's like, have you not remembered anything that we discussed when I was with you? Have you not really learned anything about what, we, what Christ has done, how he has transformed what is going on in the church, the opportunity that you have? Now, they had been affected by the Judaizers in recent weeks. And so that's what we're faced with. And I want to quote uh, two quotes from Christ in John. The first is John 3, verses 17 and 18. And this is right after you have verse 16. 
probably the most well-known reference, at least, in uh, the world. John 3.16, you see it at all the football games, for God so loved the world. But he's talking to Nicodemus, and this is exactly what he says after that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what Jesus shared with Nicodemus was that every person on earth was under condemnation because they had not believed in the name of Christ. And yet you say, well, how can they believe in him whom they have not heard of? And so I want to ask you that again here in a second. But now Jesus is saying there's only one Savior on all the earth, and that's Jesus. And now let me read you from John 12. It's again Jesus speaking, starting at verse 46. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I do not judge him, I come to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So Jesus did not come as a judge, and yet he's saying that his words will judge and that they have been judged. In John 3, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he said that. You're all under condemnation. So what exactly is Jesus referring to here? We know one thing from this text, from these two texts. There's one Savior, Jesus. There's one judge, Jesus. Because he says, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. So the condemnation is already in them. And then the condemnation is, the word that I have spoken will judge him. So all people stand condemned before the judgment seat of God. And I want to talk to you about what Jesus referred to, his words. Who created the heavens and the earth? God, right? And yet we know through exposition of scripture that Jesus was the creative force. Jesus created the world. It was Jesus that spoke the world into existence. So we know that his words ring throughout eternity. His creative power is what brought us into being. And that word of our omnipotent creator is what has embedded within it our responsibility to that creator. And so when we choose to neglect our God, our condemnation is just, our creator God. And what's interesting about this is people for all time have always known this. There is a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. And this man went to all these cultures all across the world, all these historical ancient peoples, and found that God is known to all these people. These people all know that there is a God in heaven. Now, they might not be relating to him as planned. They have all kinds of odd and bizarre religions through which they attempt to interact with him, but they know one thing. They know that they're under condemnation. They know that their sin and the shame of their guilt is real. And they develop all kinds of interesting and bizarre ways of expiating that sin. Some are horrible, you know, the throwing the virgin into the volcano type of thing. And yet they are attempting to do something about the problem 
that they are aware of. So that's people all over the world. And yet now you come to modern times where men have attempted to dispense with God in the last hundred years. And yet they haven't been able to dispense with the guilt and shame of sin, of the fall. And so we continue wrestling with that. Now we do it through psychologists, right? And it's what's the title of the book? Is it You're Okay, I'm Okay? Or is it I'm Okay, You're Okay? It's probably I'm Okay, You're Okay because it's all about me, right? It starts with me. So it's all about me, I. So that is the modern method of expiating sin, right? Forget about it. Why worry about it? And so modern psychologists that don't believe in God, that don't believe that there's really any, any rational reason for this shame and guilt, just tell you don't worry about it. Just forget about it. You got to get past that. You got to live for the present. You got to really not worry about the past. Don't let it bug you. Now, I believe that sinners vacillate between shame for their sin and pride in their sin. And let me share with you a clear example of that. There was a man elected to a Republican assembly seat in Southern California a few years ago. And yet on an open mic, before a meeting started, he was bragging to a, to a friend of his about his adulterous exploits. And it was on an open mic and it got broadcast and recorded. And he was very proud of his sin with his friend before he got caught out. Then he was very guilty and very shamed about his sin. And then at first he acknowledged it, right? Because he thought, how can I get out of this? I can't, I admit it. But then he said, oh, no, no, I was just making that up and I was just trying to impress him and you know, that's how he is. Didn't work. You know, Republican conservatives in Southern California crush people like that and he got crushed. He got run out of office very quickly. And so that is vacillation of an unbeliever because I don't believe someone like that is a believer that would be bragging about his adulterous exploits. Now, that's a sinner that's unsaved alternating between shame for his sin and pride in his sin. There's an echo. Can that be dealt with, Josiah? So there is a, another thing that I think believers vacillate between. They vacillate between shame for their sin and denial of their sin because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to give up their sin, but they do not want to acknowledge that they're sinning. And why? Because they know the rules. They know that they're supposed to be a Christian. They know that they're supposed to be abiding by the Bible. And yet they vacillate just as the unbelievers do. They vacillate between shame and now between denial or minimization. And we all see it. We see it in ourselves. We see it in others. But yet what's common between those two types of vacillation? The shame. Shame and pride. Shame and denial. So... The only salvation that we have offered to us comes through Christ. That is the only solution to sin that eliminates the guilt and the shame. All of these pagan religions that attempt to do that aren't eliminating the guilt and the shame. Those people still live with it. And that's why the next time when something happens and, and they do the right thing and it still doesn't appease it, now they've got to adapt their religion 
They've obviously not gone far enough, so now they need to push it one step further into typically what would be an aberrant behavior. Now let's get back to the text in verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. He was of the free woman of the promise. The one was a bondwoman. And so we know that to be Hagar. And Hagar came to despise Sarai. And let's go to that in Genesis. It's Genesis 16. I'll read starting at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abraham dwelt, had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So right there, in one verse, verse 4, we see she had the baby, and now she despises Sarai. So I want to relate a personal story along the same lines. It's actually not about me, but it is about a personal matter. It's my dad. Um, when I worked for my dad at the trucking company I grew up in, uh, there was a man that worked for him in the safety office, and this man's name was Bob. And Bob was a very clean-cut guy, and uh, that's because his dad was a preacher. And yet Bob had gone astray, and yet as a young truck driver who's kind of living a rough life, he had an accident, and he was actually hanging from a bridge in Pittsburgh by his trailer. He had gone off a bridge and his trailer is hanging there holding him like, like Damocles' sword over the interstate. He's about to die. He came to the Lord. And he was after, ever after that a fairly devout Baptist. And he became a deacon in his church. And yet what I remember most about my dad and Bob is they didn't get along. My dad was an unbeliever and Bob was very much a believer, fairly outspoken believer. And uh, my dad would derisively call him deacon and often to his face. I mean, my dad was his boss, and so he could kind of mistreat him like that. And what was sad to me is that uh, after they worked together for over 20 years, and then my dad went on to do something else for the last 10 years of his life, but then he died, and Bob didn't come to the funeral. Uh, and every, everybody heard about it. Everybody that knew my dad heard about it. But, uh, but I feel bad about that, because Bob and my dad knew one another for a long time. And yet, he was despised by my dad. He was mistreated by my father. And so, he, there was no love loss there, I think, on my dad's part or Bob's part. And so as a Christian, I thought, well, it would have been very magnanimous of him to come to the funeral. But as a person, I can kind of relate. I can understand that people have hard hearts about stuff like that. But that is, to me, an example of this whole Hagar-Sarai thing going on. You have this despising of someone because of the fact that you feel that you're better than them or you resent the fact that they feel they're better than you. That's where this came from. Then, a few chapters later, in chapter 21, I'll read 21, verse 9. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. So now, this is after Isaac had been weaned, and Ishmael is making fun of Isaac, his younger half-brother. And Sarah said, nope, not going to put up with this. And that's when they were banished. So the sinner will always mock 
the saint. And yet I want to remind all of us here because too often the mocking is not necessarily without reason. We give them many occasions that aren't really truthful and scriptural and us honoring God. It's because we behave more like unbelievers sometimes. And 1 Peter 3 warns us about that. 1 Peter 3 is all about really being, suffering for doing good, and yet he warns us, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so sometimes when people take us to task, it's for good reason. We're misbehaving. I knew a Christian when I first became a believer that was at my same radar site. He was in supply right across the street, and he was a horrible uh, representative of Christ. I would have never even guessed that he was a Christian uh, because he was just lazy and he bad-mouthed people. But yet when he got onto the topic of God, it was all, oh, wonderful and good and everything. But yet he was really a bad example of Christians. And uh, I, I had a friend telling me this past week about riding with a friend who had this big truck and he had a fish on the back. And he's cutting people off and swerving, accelerating, slamming his brakes on. And you still have that fish on the back of your truck, don't you? <laughs> don't you think you ought to drive a little differently? And then the man, of course, got upset with him for pointing out his sin to him, for, for pointing out his unchristian behavior. But that's the way we Christians are. If we're engaged in our sin, the last thing we want is another Christian telling us about it. And so that our first instinct is to fight back. And we went over that back about six, eight months ago. So now, we don't want to be mocked for being a bad Christian. There are plenty of bad Christians and they probably deserve to be mocked. What we want to be mocked for is being a good Christian, being a loving Christian, being a faithful Christian, being a forgiving Christian. If they're going to mock us, they're going to mock us for being good, for serving God, for being uh, faithful to Him. Now, saints too often pattern themselves after sinners. Let me read you this. Genesis 4, starting at verse 23. This is Cain's grandson. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Boastful pride and arrogance, boasting of vengeance, boasting of murdering these young men to his wives. It reminds me of gangs, this type of behavior, this vengeance, this tit for tat. That's, uh, that's something that gangs just take for granted. You, you, you have to defend yourself. You have to never tolerate a slight. You have to get even with them. And uh, it's just that's the way of the world. And that's the way that any Christian is to avoid. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I want to bring up kind of a slightly different topic here. C.S. Lewis wrote a paper on religion. And in it, he talked about religion and happiness. He said, are you a Christian because you think it will make you happy? He said, well, I know a man. He's over 80 years old, and he has his own religion. And that man is probably the happiest man I know because he loves his religion. Because his religion is worship of self. He does everything to please himself on this earth that is possible. And he's a very happy man. So I ask you, why are you a Christian? Do you think you'll be happy being a Christian? Because you picked the wrong religion if you want to be happy. If you want to be truthful, if you want to serve God faithfully, if you want to obey him in all things, then you're not sometimes going to be happy. So 
If you want to be happy, go somewhere else. Go pick another religion, like this guy. And C.S. Lewis said about himself, he said, you know, for me, if I want to be happy, a good bottle of port will do the job. So if you want to seek happiness, don't seek it in Christianity. You want to seek obedience to God. You will get fulfillment. You will be joyful. You will probably, in the end, live a much happier life. Because we know how earthly happiness goes. It leads right to the pit. Even on this earth, you get lots of troubles. But so this Lamech was proud and arrogant of his sin, uh, bragging about it to his wives, impressing them. But what I want you to now note is this. Lamech was bragging to whom? To his two wives, right? He had two wives, not scriptural. But he's a sinner. What do you expect sinners to do? That's, that's what they do. They break God's law. But now here you have Sarai giving his, her, uh, her uh, slave woman to Abram as a second wife, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's not a second wife. It's a concubine. Totally different, right? Oh, surely we're allowed to have concubines. It's not like she's a wife, right? Minimization, justification. We Christians, we, we have armies of such things at our disposable. We, we want to follow after the world, but we can't admit that it's sin. Oh, no, it's not sin. It's this or it's that. So we need to watch out for that. We have clear scriptural examples very early on that our forefathers were patterning themselves after, forefathers in Christianity, I mean, were patterning themselves after the sinful cultures within which they lived. The ones that had plowed the way, plowed the ground up, for these sinful activities, and yet too often we follow in their footsteps, and we justify it all the way. And let me give you another example. Another example would be um, uh, Israel wants a king. We want to be like the nations around us. They want to follow in the footsteps of their culture. Uh, any parents who have children that are probably beyond the age of uh, 10 or 11 have heard this one. Yes, but, you know, why can't I do this? You know, Sally can do that. Bob can do this. You know, they saw this movie. Why can't I see this movie? Different rules for different families, different moral and ethical standards for different families. And yet our children learn early that they really want to build a case for what it is that they want. And yet they lack the discretion to understand that what they're trying to build a case from is someone who has a different worldview than them. But yet we're doing it. Our children learn this. And so what we do then as parents is we say, yes, but, you know, I'm your parent. And we, if we dig further, if they're old enough, we dig further into the worldview. Yes, but this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing this like this. And so we take that opportunity to teach them because you're getting now at their heart. You're reaching all the way down to their heart to get at their motives that are driving them because that's where the weed killer needs to go, right? It can't be out here at the symptom surface level. You got to get into the heart to kill it right at the root. So we just talked about, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman. We talk, we've talked a lot about Hagar. Now, the other by a free woman. So Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, both when they had uh, finagled this end around in order to uh, resolve their own promise, get their own heir, whenever they had Hagar bear this child for him, their names were Abram and Sarai, but they were changed later. And yet, even when they were given the promise, they were Sarai, and God changed their name later. But Sarai gave Hagar to Abram to acquire a child, and so 
that is just ugly. I want you to never forget that that is just ugly. But what happened from it? God still honored his promise. You see, our sin in no way uh, deters God from being good to us, from being loving to us, from fulfilling his promises to us. We may be disciplined along the road. We may be disciplined along the way because of ways that we're misbehaving. But yet when God promises, he fulfills his promises. And he had promised them this. So now followers that are weak in the faith, we do the same thing. We do things like Sarah and Abraham have done. We, we justify ourselves. We minimize our sin. We deny our sin. And yet God still loves us. He still is patient and kind with us. He still forgives us. And he still fulfills all of his promises to us. So that's what I want you to remember about that. I don't want you to remember the fact that we're sinners. You know we're sinners. But I want you to remember the fact that God is good. And God will overcome that in your character. The longer you live, the more of the sin in you that God will root out by the power of his word and by the determination of his will. And we do have that responsibility to be faithful to him in that. Now, the two, though, Sarah and Abraham, they were born according to the flesh versus born through the promise. So now we're beginning this divergence of the two, and, and uh, uh, Paul goes into great detail at explaining the difference. Now, there are two paths, and there are only ever two paths through life. There is the hard way from the earthly perspective, and there is the easy way, from, again, from the earthly perspective. And really, you can, you can refer to those as Satan's way and God's way, right? So now, I want to use an illustration. In one of the movies of Shrek, I forget what they're for now, but uh, Donkey is going along with Shrek, and Shrek is going on this walk. I forget he's going to save somebody, of course, but, and, and it, probably unwillingly. But he's walking along, and they come to a path where they have to make a divergence. And Donkey looks down the one path, and it's dark, and it's scary, and, and there's stuff blowing around, and there are weird eyes poking out at them. And then Donkey looks down the other path, and it's bright and cheerful, and butterflies are flying along. And Shrek just starts down the dark and gloomy path without even thinking. Donkey's like, Shrek, Shrek, don't you want to take that path? And Shrek just keeps walking, ignoring Donkey. So now, there are always two paths, and the path that you choose is the path that you're comfortable with, right? Shrek is an ogre. He's bigger and badder than anything that's down that dark path, but Donkey maybe hasn't learned that yet. Donkey's just still thinking of himself. I want to take that path, but he goes with Shrek. But see, that's the point about paths. They naturally sift us out. We go where we're comfortable. We're individual people, right? We think independently. We just go where we want. We go where the culture is driving us, and we all see that. If you are, if you are not opposing culture, then you are in there. You, what is the phrase from John Owen's book? Uh, he who finds the stream uh, uh, strong is the one who is swimming against it. So unless you're swimming against that stream, you're just going along with it, and you don't even notice. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. The way of obedience can be hard. And this is what Jesus just referred to. He said it is a difficult path. Yet, how do we square that with elsewhere in Scripture where he says, take my yoke upon you, for it is light. So how do you square these two things? The one seems to be saying it's going to be tremendously difficult, the other is going to be saying it is easy, it is light. 
Think about that. How do you square these things, right? You have to. You have to do it to make sense of it. I want to talk a little bit more about these paths, though. Following the path of obedience, following the difficult path, can be challenging at first, especially as a young believer, because your circle of friends, your family is still in unbelief, most likely. And so you are immediately tested. You are thrown into the furnace, and God shoveled you in. And so there you are in the furnace, and these people are persecuting you. They're attacking you. And what do you know? You know nothing. Typically, we come to God, and we're empty of knowledge. And so why does he do that? Is he just mean? Is God mean? No. Cram your head full as quickly as you can. You've got to figure stuff out now, fast, because you've got all these people asking you hard questions, and you don't know the answers. First, it's going to test your pride, right? Because you're going to want to not admit your ignorance. And so you start making stuff up. Tabitha knows me. She knows I'm really good at that. So I'll just make stuff up. They don't know. But yet, then you kind of box yourself in and you can begin getting into a problem and then they point it out. And, and if they're really sharp, they're really logical, you lose. You lose the battle. And now you're, you're ashamed and you go back and you lick your wounds and you think, God, why did you do that to me? But after you get over your pity party, you realize God wants me to grow. God wants me to work at this. And so I will. So then you put your hand to the plow and you start working. Now the yoke comes into play. Now that yoke is easy and the burden is light because you're doing what you want. And yet God has used self-motivation to get you to do that. Isn't that interesting? You've embarrassed yourself. He's embarrassed you. He flipped you in there. But he knows what's going to happen to you. He's going to transform you into a studying fool because you don't want to be embarrassed like that again. You want to impress these people next time. I'm going to whoop them next time, right? So, I mean, he appeals even to our pride in getting us to do the right thing. He can deal with the pride later. He'll throw us in a different furnace to get rid of that. So it's just God has this mechanism here, 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 here. And we don't know what's going on sometimes. We're so confused. We're so upset. We're so mad at him. I was talking to Samuel a little bit about that earlier. You know, God knows all this stuff. He's sovereign. And we of all people can sometimes get upset with him because why isn't he doing it differently for me right now? So uh, the next verse really gets to the whole heart of the text. And it's verse 24, which things are symbolic. So now he's been talking about Hagar and, and uh, Sarah. He's been talking about the fact that they represent two different paths, two different peoples, two different outlooks, two different worldviews, and it is symbolic. It is a metaphor, and he uses it throughout the rest of the text. And so here, right in verse 25, he says, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And actually, the Arabic term for Mount Sinai is Mount Agar. And so you can see that it's almost a derivative of Hagar. It's like they're so similar. And the really... A frightening thing for the Jews, the Judaizers, to be reading here is this. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem. Now this is interesting. And so you're corresponding Hagar with Sinai with Jerusalem. You're tying us to unbelievers. You're tying us to Ishmaelites. Why are you doing that, Paul? So they must have really resented reading this, the people that really didn't understand what was going on. These Judaizers were no different than Esau. 
Esau sold his birthright for that stew. And the Jews, the Judaizers, have, are selling their birthright. They are selling their salvation for self-righteousness. They're abandoning God's righteousness. They are clinging to the law, clinging to the self-righteousness that they believe they have acquired through the law. And they don't want to give it up. They're not willing to. They're fighting Paul on this. But then he goes on in 26. But the Jerusalem above, so now we've got two Jerusalems. We've got the one on the earth that he's equated with unbelief, and then we've got the other one. But, we, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So we've got Jerusalem above, the spiritual Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem as our mother. And who do we have as our father? Abraham. Spiritual father of all believing Christians is Abraham. Any person that enters into heaven has Abraham as their spiritual father. Why? Because of the fact that it was reckoned unto him as righteousness, the faith that he had in God. And so that is the means by which all will enter heaven, having their faith reckoned to them as righteousness. And so in that regard, Abraham is our spiritual father. Now, Paul then goes into a quote of Isaiah 54, and I want to go there and read that. Isaiah 54. Now, the whole chapter is beautiful, and the whole chapter really talks about the people coming to God. But I'll just read the first few verses from where this is quoted. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Now, this is stupid right? This totally goes against human nature. It totally goes against logic. You're saying a barren woman will have more children than a fruitful woman, right? So Isaiah is pointing out the fact that God doesn't have to obey logic. God is free to dispense with logic when he wants to, and that's what he does, and that's what Paul is, is expounding for us. The fact that God deviated from logic in order to do this. Now, he does bring about an earthly child in Isaac, yet it is a miracle child because this woman was way past childbearing. She was past the time when she could possibly have a baby, and so it was a miracle. God brought this miracle to pass. More of the children of the desolate. Now, let's talk a little bit about women in the Old Testament and children. First, we've already talked about Hagar and Sarai, how how Hagar, when she found that she had that child in her womb, despised her, her uh, what did they refer to as, her, her lady or whatever, but her master. Sarai was her master. Abraham later says, she's in your hand, do with her what you will. And so she had total control over Hagar, over her life even. So this woman did not fear Sarah, even though she was in a position of total authority. She was her ma mistress, her master. Yet she did not fear her because that mockery just came up from within her, from her heart of unbelief. Na, 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 na. I have a baby, you don't. And so that just angered Sarah. It hurt her deeply. Leah and Rachel. You have Leah, who was this trickery. Rachel, who Jacob loved, and yet God opened Leah's womb, closed Rachel's womb. Rachel is upset about it. So then what does she do? She gives Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah. And then Bilhah has children. 
And then Leah's womb is closed. So what does she do? She gives Jacob Zilpah. And so we've got this progression, this, this believing people following after sinful people. We see it then, we see it now. I just want you to be aware of it. Let's not judge these people too harshly. They're a part of their culture and they're following after their cultural practices in opposition to the word of God. And yet we do the same thing nowadays. We have friends, Christian friends, who do it every day. We do it every day. And that's not right. We just need to judge ourselves far more harshly than we're judging these people or anybody that we see around us. Now let me read verse 2 and 3 again in Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. This is salvation. These are the saved that are growing like this because they are the prodigy of the barren woman. That is Sarai. That is us. We come from that, that, uh, that pit of darkness. God saves us even though we don't deserve it. He births us even though it is supernatural. Now, this picture shows everybody turning to God, and Isaiah tells us more are the children of the barren. And yet again, Jesus said, few would take the narrow road. So see, I'm coming back to that again. I want to ask you that question. I want you to think about that. What does this mean? In a C.S. Lewis essay, he spoke about repeated predictions of the death of the church. Uh, back around the founding of our country, deism was growing so quickly that many felt that it was going to kill the Orthodox Church. That, you know, deism, what that is, is just the belief that God is this mysterious God that made the world, set it in motion, and then took off on a holiday. And so that's deism. And so deism was growing like gangbusters back then, taking over Europe, growing here in the States. It was supposed to be the death knell of the church. Then, in the mid-1800s, you had evolution come about. That was going to be the death knell of the church. Then evolution really morphed into total scientific rationalism to where now that science is going to displace, crush the church. But deism is dead. Evolution, in my opinion, is dying. It has no intellectual support foundation. The only reason it's being retained is that there's nothing for the unbelievers to have take, the, take its place, and yet it has no intellectual depth, no support. And we have scientific rationalism that is not taking the day because people know in their hearts there is a God. And so what you see instead is Christianity blossoming around the world. And even here at home, it is experiencing a rebirth, a, 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 re, uh, a, a, a rebirth relative to all of what was supposed to be casting it aside and knocking it down. And the way I see it is these imposters are like dead flies in the window of the church, of the cathedral that God is building, his church. So deism is dead, lying there. Evolution is buzzing and wearing itself out. Scientific rationalism is maybe still going strong and slamming at the window, but it is going to do no damage to the church. God's church will prevail. God's church will grow. Verse 28, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. So now we have been born into a household of faith. We're not born naturally, we're born supernaturally. And the children of the bondwoman 
don't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, perhaps like me, I'm sure many of you have, you've tried to explain salvation to someone that you believe is a cultural Christian. We politely call them nominal Christians as well. In other words, we're saying they appear to have no fruit to us. We don't see it, but you know, we'll just know that that's God. I mean, it's God's job as to whether there's fruit or not. We won't worry about it. But we can discuss with them the reality of what being a Christian is. So what fruit should you be bearing? So one such conversation I had with a neighbor lady years ago, and there was no fruit in her life. Her husband was an unbeliever. He was a, actually a Jew uh, culturally, you know, uh, racially, but wasn't active in his synagogue or anything. He wasn't a practicing Jew. He just agnostic, didn't care about the church. And yet they were married. They met in college. They went, you know, steady and they got married and had beautiful kids. And yet here she was a practicing Catholic, somewhat practicing. And I was really trying to preach the gospel to her because I was concerned for her. Her husband was dying at the time. And, uh, she got very offended. I mean, this was one of these really nice ladies that always says nice things like this. And, uh, and she would just never hurt a fly. But when I really tried to pin her down in her kitchen about faith and what it means and about believing in Christ and what it means, she got very defensive. And she said that I was 13 when I became a Christian. I don't need you telling me. Okay, okay. So that was the last time we witnessed together. Um, but, you know, she went on about her life and she's an unbeliever. Unbelievers really, really, who consider themselves believers, really, really resent you pushing on those soft spots in their life. It might not be even a logical thing that they're arguing for. It could be emotional, whatever it is. But if you take the Scripture to them and you attempt to convince them of, of the truth of what the Scripture is saying and ways in which they're inconsistent with it, they don't want to hear it. They, get very, they can get very abusive, actually, to you. The same thing happened if any of you have read Brushko. Bruce Olson's experience, same thing. He's saved in this liberal Lutheran church back in the 60s, and he goes to his pastor all excited. Bruce, we're all Christians here. Clueless, didn't have an idea. Bruce knew all of his friends were not saved, and yet he can't even get the pastor to take an interest in what it is that he needs to do in order to try to preach the gospel to these young people. So now, in verse 29, it leads right into this. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. And so they will always persecute the Christians because our lives are a testament to the fact that they are not on the right path. 1 John 3 reads this. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And Cain did not want to be reminded of that. And he went to the extent to killing his own brother over that distinction. He did not want us distinguishing between good and evil. And that's the same in our culture now. Unbelievers do not want you distinguishing between good and evil. They don't want you distinguishing between salvation and damnation. Now, what are we to do then? And verse 30 tells us the answer. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. That seems harsh, right? 
Is that the loving Christian thing to do? I want to be such a nice Christian. I don't want people to dislike me. But yet, like I, when I was witnessing with my neighbor lady, there comes a point in every earthly relationship where you're dealing with an unbeliever where, okay, I guess this is it. This is the day that God has planned it. I'm either crossing that bridge or she's going to destroy it before I can get over it. And that's what happens. And so you've risked a relationship for the sake of getting across that bridge and trying to open their eyes to the truth. And they... You never make it across the bridge. So you go back. And now, is there another opportunity? I don't know. I mean, people are all over the map on this. I mean, I realize that. And some people really never attempt to take a bridge. And that's fine. You know, God will be the judge as to whether our lives and our conduct over on this side of the river are good enough to convince those people that they need to cross that bridge. But sometimes, it's probably just me, it's a failing of my character, sometimes I try to take the bridges. And people don't like me trying to take their bridges. And so they destroy it instead of allowing me to cross it. And that's just a risk that we face. And yet the truth is, the two shall not be co-heirs. People are going to hell, and it's worth the fight, in my opinion. Now, only those clothed in the righteous robes of Christ are welcome in heaven. And we have that story of uh, Jesus told about the wedding feast. And here these people are at the wedding feast, and and the, the master of the ceremonies is pointing them out, saying, get those people out of here. They don't belong here. They're not in the robes of righteousness. They're not in the wedding clothes. Pilgrim's Progress, if you, many of you have read that, you've got the man who's trying to climb over the wall. Christian's walking along, and he sees this man, and what are you doing? I'm going to get in. Well, but, you know, you're supposed to go through the gate. Yeah, I know, but that's not the only way in here. I'm going to go this way. They keep telling me to go through the gate, but I don't want to go through the gate. When you go to the gate, they have to invite you in. I, I don't need to be invited in. I'm going in. So see, you see the difference. Now, we are not of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is how he's ending it. So then we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So Paul's wrapping up his allegory. He's ended it. He said, we are free people. We are Christians. We are of the spiritually Jerusalem. And yet, we are still so much like unbelievers, aren't we? It's really hard to distinguish sometimes. It's really difficult. If only we had some little glowing light, you know, a blinking red light that would appear that I could, oh yeah, you're a believer. See it right there. Your, your light is blinking. It's just not that simple. And, and frankly, we don't need to know, right? I mean, we're curious. We want to know, but God withholds that information. C.S. Lewis said in a description of this that we all want good sewer systems. In other words, there are so many things that all humans agree on, and that is why secularists in our culture right now are trying to get the Christians back in that box. You don't need to bring any of that stuff into the public arena because we all want the same stuff, right? We're all alike. And it is so easy to be seduced into thinking that way because we are alike in many, many ways. But I want to point out to you one fundamental, unalterable way in which we're different that casts us on different paths. It's that, it's that ogre path of the dark, and it's that donkey path of the light. We're on totally different paths. Even though there are many similar experiences in our, in our lives, they're fundamentally different. First, I'll go with believers. Believers think we will live forever. 
They believe man is the pinnacle of creation, God's highest work. It's not the earth, it's not the universe, it's man. They believe, the fools, that the state is less important than the people that make up the state, even though they're just going to die and the state will go on. And so I want to ask you a question, and I believe this really hits right at the heart of things that Christians don't often think through. Is it appropriate for our government to have compulsory service of its young men? I suggest to you that that is an aspect of our present culture that values the success and the surviving of the state over that of the individual man, any individual man. Now, I know there are biblical arguments for uh, all the young men serving, all the young men being counted and all that, but yet in the Bible, any young man who is fearful is free to leave. There's shame associated with it. Oh yeah, there's shame, but you're free to leave. Whereas in our culture, there is compulsory service. Now, has this always been? No, it's not always been. Now, when our country was formed from the 13 states, some of those states did have compulsory service laws, but not all the states were founded on the same Christian principles that we now espouse. Some of them were Catholic, some of them were just out there. Rhode Island was kind of odd. My wife is from Rhode Island, I'm sorry, honey. But, uh, but anyway, the states were all different. They were all divergent. So their constitutions had already really changed over the previous 150 years. But when the nation was formed, there was no compulsory draft. As a matter of fact, James Madison in 1814, because of the War of 1812 and the threat that England was bringing upon this young nation, tried to draft 40,000 people. And this is what Daniel Webster said. And the lack of a draft, the lack of compulsory service won the day. This is how Daniel Webster spoke at the House of Representatives. The administration asserts the right to fill the ranks of the regular army by compulsion. Is this, sir, consistent with the character of a free government? Is this civil liberty? Is this the real character of our Constitution? No, sir. Indeed, it is not. Where is it written in the Constitution? In what article or section is it contained that you may take children from their parents and parents from their children and compel them to fight the battles of any war in which the folly or the wicked, wickedness of government may engage it? Under what concealment has this power lain hidden, which now for the first time comes forth with a tremendous and baleful aspect to trample down and destroy the dearest rights of personal liberty? You see, we've always had people at the federal level that are statists and non-statists. This is nothing new. This war has been going on now for 235 years longer. So that is what Daniel Webster said, and that is what prevailed in 1814. There was no compulsory service. That wasn't introduced until 1862, April of 1862, by the Confederacy. They're the ones that first instituted the draft. The federal government followed three months later with a compulsory draft. Neither, neither of the North or the South succeeded, by the way. In the South, there were riots. In the North, there were riots. We were a nation of free people until 1862, when both the North and the South instituted compulsory service. Oh, the Southerners were outraged. The free Southerners, oh, they despised this move. And many, even now, many Christians will point to it and say, you know, this is kind of the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. When they really attempted to use their men 
not as men, but as tools of a state, they lost their moral high ground. Now, many people, of course, from Northern Persuasion would say they lost it when they were defending slavery, but you know, we'll save that for another con- uh, mention. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's actually, I was talking about believers there. So now that was the believer realm. Believers, man is the pinnacle of creation. The state is less important. And all I gave you was an illustration of how in our modern culture, we Christians have given up the high ground. Now, unbelievers. Unbelievers think man will live about 70 or 80 years. John Maynard Keynes, when his uh, economic model of government spending in, in economic downtimes was criticized as being unworkable long term, he said, well, in the long term, we're all dead anyway. Now, I would agree or even propose, I don't know if I've ever read this, but I would propose that he was being flippant. That John Maynard Keynes was just saying that as a snide remark. He was a very bright guy and he was British, so they have this witty, dry sense of humor. But it reflects his worldview. And so even as a flippant comment, it reflected deeply into who he was and what he believed. And he believed that man was a tool of the state. Now, what's interesting is this. England really went into socialism heavily. In this nation, we threw off that. We, we began embracing regulatory government, that's for sure. But in the 60s, we had people really move away from service of the state, more to service of themselves. You know, we had the freedom of the 60s, the drugs and all that. Well, that really burned itself out fairly quickly. And we have moved beyond the state. Now, it's the earth that is our God. It's not the state, it's the earth. And that's why there's such a press on now. And, and it's just amazing how quickly people have developed a conscience to defend the earth from the human invaders. What are we going to do? What are we going to leave it for the ants to take over? But so many people regard humans as the cancer on the earth. And I've quoted that here before in other messages. But I don't want us to write off the earth. We know heaven is our home, right? But where is that heaven? It's on the new earth. That heaven comes down. We see that in Revelation. That heaven comes down, descending to this rejuvenated earth. So let's just not give up on the earth. We want to fight for her, too, if we can call the earth a her. It's not like it's our mother. We know our mother, right? The heavenly Jerusalem that is above, that will descend onto this new earth. That's what's described in Scripture as our mother. So now, heaven is our eternal home. And this is a small world we live in. Uh, Many of you know I was in the Marine Corps. When I was in the Marine Corps, there were probably under 200,000 people in the Marine Corps. And I was in the air wing, which is, you know, if you take this as the Marine Corps, the air wing is like, whoop, it's really tiny. And then I was in radar repair, and that gets even tinier. Well, when I was in, I knew I wasn't going to stay in forever, but I had coworkers that were. They wanted to stay in for 20 years. And yet some of them were jerks. They were really bad people. They were bad workers. They were kind of always insulting their coworkers. They were hard to get along with, yet they were going to try to make it a career. And some of the more experienced uh, Marines that have been in for 15 years, they're like, well, they're going to learn that the Marine Corps radar community is very small. They're going to learn that very quickly. And so the problem with that is this. These people, 12, 13, 14 years down the road, are trying to re-enlist again because they want to retire. They want to get to the 20 years and be able to claim that half Uh, income for the rest of their lives. Well, if they're jerks and if they're bad people, there's a lot of people there that have power and influence in that, and you might not get to re-enlist. 
they just eliminate you at 12 years. I'm sorry, but we don't want your kind in the Marine Corps. So those poor people that were jerks didn't realize that they were living in a small community. We're in a small community, aren't we? We think there is a lot of stuff that separates us from one another. And we sometimes can't see that the stuff that unites us, the blood of Christ that unites us, is so much stronger, so much more broad in scope and in its power. And yet we allow ourselves to be marginalized in many ways, to marginalize friendships, opportunities that we have. And we ourselves might find ourselves being critical of others. And yet you're going to be living with one another in heaven. When you get to heaven, who are you going to know? I'm going to know you a lot more than people from wherever, you know, Paris, France. I don't know anybody in Paris, France. I know you. I know many of you. So when I get to heaven, my friends will be you, I hope. And so whatever friendships you begin here will continue in heaven. There is this continuity of life. And so I encourage you, even if not for our present world, for the future world that you will have with one another to come, be kind, be loving, uh, be, be open, be honest, uh, be forgiving, because you will be seeing one another again, hopefully unless you go down the wrong path. That, but that's why we're here every week telling you what path to go down. Don't follow the ogre. Donkey knew what he was talking about. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word uh, that is a wealth of wisdom uh, to those who will avail themselves of it. So we ask you, Lord, to open our eyes to the paths that you have all the people of earth on uh, we ask you to give us courage to do the right thing ourselves, uh, to admit weakness, to admit failure, uh, to long for the day when we will be free of sin. And we also uh, encourage you, Lord, to give us wisdom. We, we plead with you to give us wisdom and courage uh, to talk with our unsaved loved ones, friends, neighbors, about the paths that people are on. Uh, have us, Lord, to be serious about wanting to evangelize and I know it's difficult at times. I know it is something that we would rather not do, and so we put it off and put it off and put it off. But I pray, Father, that you would have us to do it, to recognize that life is precious. It is very important that we do what is right. And yet we thank you, Father, for the gift of life, for the gift of your presence, for the gift of salvation. Uh, we want to use our lives not only to enjoy ourselves, which you've commanded us to do, and yet also to do all that you've asked us. So we ask you, Lord, to... Uh, be with us, to walk with us, to uh, uh, show us our sins as we need them shown, and to give us kind friends and who can do that well as well. We thank you, Father, for your uh, being with us now, and we ask you to go with us in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.